You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. We've got a big action-packed weekend between the baseball and some basketball news. The NBA Finals resuming tomorrow night. Can the Heat make that a series? Early indications say the answer to that is no. We've got the Stanley Cup Finals beginning tonight in an unlikely place between a couple of unlikely opponents. And uh, some afternoon baseball for both the Yankees and the Mets. Yankees afternoon where they are early evening here. In fact, we'll take you right up until our coverage of the Yankees and the Dodgers from Dodger Stadium, uh, which begins here at 630. Yankees looking to get back off the mat after losing 8-4 to in the series opener last night. Also a tough night for the Mets at City Field. They had to wait out an hour and 40-minute rain delay. And it appeared that once the game started, the Mets bats were not in tow as they were shut out by former Met Chris Bassett, three to nothing. Um, incredible job by Bassett, by the way. If you weren't following that game or didn't stay with it last night, Bassett's wife in Toronto uh, was going into labor or was about to go into labor. So the deal was Bassett is going to pitch the game. And as soon as he's done pitching, He's hopping on a private plane that was awaiting him at one of the local airports to fly back to Toronto to be there for the birth of his child. You can only imagine what's going through this guy's head. I can, having had two children uh, and having had to leave work both times when my wife went into labor. It's very stressful, as many of our listeners can certainly attest. And and to go out there, first of all, uh, with that on your mind to pitch a Major League Baseball game, but then have to get the extra hour and 40-minute delay before finally getting on the mound at 840 and then completely, completely shutting down the Mets. I also thought that John Schneider, who's not uh, any stranger to making boneheaded mistakes, this is the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays I'm talking about, uh, I thought he made another boneheaded move last night. Bassett was incredible, and he goes seven and two-thirds innings. It's still a one nothing game because Justin Verlander was awesome as well, and we'll touch on him. Um, two outs, nobody on, eighth inning, and they bring in the lefty, to face Brandon Nimmo, who eats lefties alive. And I'm thinking, this is the Mets' chance. This manager just overmanaged this game. The Mets have been able to get nothing off of Bassett. I think he had just thrown his 101st pitch. They take him out. And the Mets, uh, and more specifically Brandon Nimmo, out Bonehead, the Bonehead manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, because Nimmo gets called out on strikes because of a pitch clock violation. Now, come on. All right, I understand this has taken some getting used to, right? But this is month three of the pitch clock. And in a spot like that, when you're at the plate with two outs and you have two strikes on you and you're the tying run in a one-run game, you cannot, cannot let that happen. Well, Nimmo wasn't ready to hit with eight seconds left on the pitch clock. They called a strike on him. It was strike three. The inning ended, and that's how Toronto got out of that one final jam. So the Mets lose 3-0. Great job by Bassett. Also a terrific job uh, by Justin Verlander. We'll start, though, with the NBA and not the NBA Finals. We'll talk about the NBA Finals next hour. Jason Jackson, who's the play-by-play man for the Miami Heat, he'll check in from Denver ahead of tomorrow night's Game 2, which we'll also have that for you right here on 98.7 ESPN New York. We'll uh, talk about his thoughts on where Miami is after their double-digit loss in game number one. Miami losing or trailing in a series for the first time uh, in these NBA playoffs. They haven't been behind at all until right now. They won game one against Milwaukee, never trailed in that series. As we in New York know, they won game one in round two at the Garden, never trailed in that series against the Knicks. 
And then they won the first three games against the Celtics, lost the next three, and, of course, won game seven in Boston. So now they're down one game to nothing. Game two coming up tomorrow night from the Mile High City. Boy, Denver looked real good, real good in game one on Thursday, and I've seen them look a lot better. So I don't have high hopes for that being a lengthy series. Um, we shall see. Tomorrow's going to be a crucial game to uh, determine whether or not it is. Uh, but the news here out of New York that we learned earlier today, Julius Randle has undergone successful surgery, according to the Knicks, on his left ankle. And in the Knicks' brief statement on Twitter, it said that Randle will resume basketball activities later this summer. He's expected, it sounds like, to be ready for the start of training camp, which is in late September. Um, and it, it kind of makes you think about you know one of our favorite, and, and by our, I mean most Knicks fans, I'm not including myself in this, by the way, uh, but one of the most favorite and popular punching bags in New York, which is the guy who statistically has been the best player on the Knicks for the last four years, and that is Julius Randle. And, and it more speaks to the contradiction of a player that Julius Randle is because when you hear the news that, yeah, he, we know he sprained his ankle on the 29th of March, ironically, in a game at the Garden, one of the Knicks' best-played games of the season, in a game against the Miami Heat, sprained his ankle that night. Knicks went on to win that game, missed the final five games of the regular season because the Knicks essentially had their playoff spot wrapped up. They had the fifth seed wrapped up. And really, it wasn't even just for precautionary reasons. It was more than that. I mean, Randall's sprained ankle was pretty severe. So... He missed the end of the regular season. If you remember the start of the playoffs, game one in Cleveland, that Saturday afternoon about a month and a half ago, we didn't know until about an hour before game time whether or not Randall was going to play. He did, and he was the best Nick on the floor in the first half of that game, a game that the Knicks eventually won thanks to late heroics from Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart. But then Randall was pedestrian at best the rest of the series. And it's just a reminder that he wasn't 100%. And then you go to game five of the Cleveland series. And in the first half of that game, that was the best he looked all playoffs long. He wasn't forcing the issue. That was the game that the Knicks had a chance to close out the Cavs. They eventually did close out the Cavs in that game five on the road. But Randall wasn't forcing the issue. He had about five or six assists in the first quarter. His shot had not been on the entire series. So what he did, he drew the defense to him. He was more of a distributor. And then in the second quarter, when the defense started focusing on his teammates, that's when Randall started to get his shot going. And then unfortunately, at the very end of the second quarter, he sprained that same ankle again. And he was gone for the rest of the game. He missed the first game of the Miami series, which could that have helped the Knicks? Of course that could have helped the Knicks, even when Randall's not 100%. Look, most people think Randall played bad, like bad in the playoffs. He averaged 16 and a half points for, uh, during the playoffs in the uh, Knicks' two rounds combined. I mean, that helps, even if it, according to his standards, is bad, as many people have said. So he certainly could have helped in that game one. Came back in game two, got off to a slow start, and was very good. And then the rest of the series, he struggled. But look, this is a reminder. He sprained his ankle twice, two and a half weeks apart. Once at the end of the regular season, once at the end of the first round. He missed, in the playoffs, one game. Well, really, one and a half games. He missed second half in game five against Cleveland. He missed the entire game one against Miami. And that's all he missed. So you have to take that into consideration when you analyze Julius Randle's performance in these playoffs. The man was playing injured. And here's the contradictory part about Randle, right? Because people like to complain. What are the complaints about Randle? 
He doesn't show up in the big games. Okay, fair. And the the stats bear that out in 2021, the five round first round, the five game first round series loss to Atlanta, and he didn't really shine in these playoffs either. Now you can uh, debate how much of that was injury related, and it's fair. There's no clear answer to that, but I certainly think this time around, it was a factor. What are the other complaints about Julius Randle? His body language. He has a temper. He loses his cool at times. Did anybody once during this entire playoff run hear Julius Randle ever complain about his ankle, ever use that as an excuse when he's getting ripped to shreds on this radio station, in the papers, by the callers, by the fans, when he's getting booed at Madison Square Garden during the playoffs? Did he ever, ever once cite his injured ankle that ultimately required surgery as the reason why he wasn't performing up to his level. No, not once. So that is part of the contradiction of Randall because we all see the bad body language, the temper, um, the untimely technical fouls, the moments where he loses his cool with referees, with opponents, occasionally with teammates and with assistant coaches. We've all seen that play out over his four years. But then on the other side, when the man uh, straps it on and goes out there every single night, 40, 42 minutes, not nearly at 100%. He never once complained. And that is the contradiction that is Julius Randle. Has he performed in the playoffs? He's had three postseason series with the Knicks. And in his career, by the way. He's never been to the playoffs in another uniform. Three postseason series. 2021 against Atlanta. And then this year against Cleveland and against Miami. Has he performed up to his regular season level in any of those playoff series? The answer is no. It's a definitive no. However, and again, the contradiction part, could the Knicks have gotten to the playoffs either of those times without Julius Randle? And the answer there is also a definitive no. So that leads to really the biggest question of this Knicks offseason is what to do with Julius Randle. And now this added layer after the news of today with the ankle surgery and again, it doesn't sound like it's arthroscopic surgery, right? It doesn't sound like it, it's, um, you know, a hereditary thing or a debilitating thing. The guy sprained his ankle twice uh, pretty severely late in the season, and he had surgery to try to correct what was leading to that, okay? Um, does this change the Knicks' approach with Randall, does it change his trade value? Does it tra change his marketability throughout the NBA heading into the offseason? I think the answer to that is no. I think that if there's a team that for whatever reason, and there's a number of reasons, but if there's a team interested in trading for Julius Randall or acquiring Julius Randall, then I don't think that this is going to dissuade them too much from doing that. Randall actually, contrary to popular belief, has a very tradable contract. Now, the other question is, of course, is that in the Knicks' best interests to move on from Julius Randall? And I was on this radio station, I believe it was two days. It was Mother's Day, so it was two days after the season ended. That was the last time I hosted a show here, and we got into a lot of conversation about that because the season had ended in Miami less than 48 hours prior to that show, and the entire afternoon we spoke about what's next for the Knicks because that remains the question. What is next for the Knicks? I don't know exactly what's next for the Knicks, but I, what I do know is this, and we've watched the playoffs continue ever since the Knicks went down in game six down in Miami on the 12th of May, and we've watched Miami go on and have that seven-game second round, uh, excuse me, conference final series against the Boston Celtics. We 
see what the Denver Nuggets are, clearly the best team in the NBA right now. We saw what the Lakers were, able to knock off Golden State in the second round and get to the conference finals with LeBron James and Anthony Davis and a bunch of uh, role players playing their roles pretty well. And you get an idea of, of what it takes to get to the next level. And the one thing that is clear is that the Knicks are not at that next level, which rationally you have to come to the conclusion that if you are clearly not at that next level, which the Knicks are not, then you have to make changes. Okay? The Knicks, what they did this year, and really collectively during the Tom Thibodeau era, which is now three years, what the Knicks have done, the Knicks fan for six, seven years from, you know, the end of the Mike Woodson era when the Knicks didn't make the playoffs through the Phil Jackson years, Jeff Hornacek and Derek Fisher and Kurt Rambis and David Fisdale and all of that, the Knicks fans really just became uh, trained to look for silver linings, right? 35 wins, look for improvement, look for competent play, look for competitive play. And in this town, by the way, we've had that with a lot of teams lately. The Giants fans have gotten the same way. The Jets fans have gotten the same way. The good news is collectively as a sports city, as a sports market here in New York, I'm pretty sure that most teams have come out on the other side of that. And what the Knicks fans have to realize is that, yeah, this was a – Let's call it a surprisingly good season. I think if you looked at what the Knicks could do at the beginning of the year and what they ultimately did do, I think they overachieved. I don't think there were a lot of people thinking they would get a top five seed in the Eastern Conference. I don't think there were a lot of people thinking that they would win a first-round playoff series. They did both of that, and then they ended up going to six games against a team that right now is in the NBA Finals. So by pretty much any measure, the Knicks' season was one of overachievement. But that doesn't mean that they can sit back now and say, okay, cool, we're at this level now. Let's keep it here for a while. No, you've got to keep moving this train forward. So how do you do that? That is the biggest question of this offseason. And as I have said before and will continue to say, on this Knicks roster, as you look to improve this Knicks roster, the one untouchable name on the roster, and there's only one, it's the guy whose name is above number 11, Jalen Brunson. That's it. Everything else, everyone else has to be on the table when you look to improve this team next year. You cannot come back next year and run it back with the same starting five and run it back with the same nine-man rotation and run it back with the same offensive philosophy and expect to go further. If you do that, not only will you not go further, I think you will take a step back. So when you look at the Knicks roster, if you're going to make moves – you need to see what you have that is attractive to other teams around the NBA. And of course, if not the first name, one of the first names on that list will be a guy who in the last three years has been a two-time All-Star and a two-time All-NBA performer. And now there's this additional layer that he is coming off of ankle surgery. So how much does that affect what the Knicks can do this offseason? It just adds another layer to what they have to do as they look forward to next year. All right, we'll get into this, and we'll get into a lot of baseball talk as we continue. It's a special day at City Field, Mets Hall of Fame Day. Uh, watching some of the coverage right now, I see Howard Johnson, who kind of uh, cornered the market on 30-30 seasons in the late 80s and early 1990s, one of the four names being inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame this afternoon. Uh, we'll preview the Yankees and the Dodgers. We'll get Doug Glanville on in a couple of hours. He'll be on the broadcast call, the national broadcast right here on ESPN 
from Dodger Stadium, get his thoughts on where the Yankees are just past the one-third mark of the season. And, of course, your calls at 1-800-919-3776. Pat O'Keefe with you on a Saturday afternoon on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. So we'll have Yankees-Dodgers uh, live right here tonight on 98.7 ESPN New York from Dodger Stadium. Our coverage beginning right after this show at 6.30. We'll lead you right up until that. Garrett Cole and Michael Grove. Cole is 6-0 and with a 2.93 earned run average. Grove is making his fifth start of the season, just his 11th career start. He's 0-1 this year with an 8.44 earned run average. And, of course, the biggest news earlier today regarding the Knicks, Julius Randle undergoing successful surgery on the left ankle that he sprained twice during the tail end of this uh, recently completed season. Uh, Really hampered him throughout the playoffs. Randle will resume basketball activities later this summer, expected to be ready for training camp in late September. Let's get some reaction. 1-800-919-3776. So we welcome in our friend Jose in Brooklyn. Jose leading things off. What's up, Jose? Good evening, Mr. O'Keefe. And how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I thought heard, heard you on the radio and I was just like, great. I get to sneak in some Knicks because I know he's definitely going to try to talk about them. So, well, especially um, today. Yep. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> Here's the thing with the with, with my thing, because I, I, I do agree with you. If there is a deal to be made, we have to explore all options. My concern is that I'm not a fan of the, you know, let's get uh, trade anything at all costs to get any to just get any superstar that even if it doesn't fit. And that's kind of where my concern is, because we do have a very favorable position, because I know that this is not till next year's draft, but there are four first round picks that we can possibly trade off. Um, and a couple of, and with those certain scenarios with what's going on with Detroit and Dallas and, and Washington, those may not be protected picks. So those may be easier to, you know, unload and possibly get more advantageous, you know, key players around this team to possibly get it. Cause I think we, if we, if we possibly get some better shooters and better three, um, three and D players and possibly a better offensive five, we can possibly be a little bit better, but I'm, I, I want to take the long game approach rather than trying to reset everything just for it to be disappointing again. Jose, uh, I hear you. Thanks for the call. Here's what I'll say to that, okay? The long game approach gets tricky, and this is where I do think that Knicks fans, and Jose's a great Knicks fan and a knowledgeable one and a a frequent caller to the show, which I appreciate, but Knicks fans, I do think, need to become a little more reconditioned. It's okay to get um, a little antsy now, okay? It's okay to show a sense of urgency to improve this team. We collectively, those who follow, those who cover, those who root for this team, it's been a decade of taking the long approach. It's been a decade of, okay, let's put some pe- – right? It's, it's actually been longer than that if you think about it. It started really in 2008 when it became apparent that LeBron James was going to become a free agent in the prime of his career, and the Knicks brought in Donnie Walsh, and he moved hell and high water and actually did it to clear the cap space 
to bring LeBron James to New York. They weren't able to get that deal done. But in the process, they brought in Amari Stoudemire. They traded for Carmelo Anthony. At least they did make the franchise more competent. And they had a little three-year, I wouldn't call it a run, but a three-year period of making the playoffs, and they won a playoff series in that third year. And then they took another step back, and a step back, and a step back to the point where by uh, what was it, 20, gosh, it was my. It was right before my first year with the Knicks, so 2014, 2015. So, yeah, two years, two years after uh, winning the division and winning a, a playoff series, they were the worst team in basketball. They were 17 and 65. And then it's like, okay, well, let's take the long way again. You know, Phil Jackson was going to come in, and he was going to start this thing from scratch and build it up and build it up. And they showed some signs his first year. They won like 33 to 35 games and a little bit of improvement. And then the roof fell in on that experiment. And the next thing you know, David Fisdale is your coach. Phil Jackson is out. Chris Stapps Porzingis has torn up his knee. And four years later, you're 17 and 65 again. Like that's two 17 and 65s in a four-year period. It's about as bad as you can get. So I think the Knicks fan has been... Uh, condition to take the long approach. And that's not what this requires now. Because if you look at where the Knicks are as a team and where this league is, right, this isn't Major League Baseball where Aaron Judge just signed a nine-year contract and Garrett Cole is in year four of a nine-year contract. You know, Julius Randle, it feels like he just signed that contract extension, right? And I was talking about his contract last segment. Randall is due to make $28 million this year, which, by the way, is a bargain. It's a bargain. And I know Knicks fans hate Julius Randall. If you don't think that's a bargain for Julius Randall compared to what other guys in the NBA make and the production that he puts forth, call me right now and tell me I'm wrong at 1-800-919-3776. He's due to make $28 million this year. He's due to make $30 million next year. And then he's got a player option the year after that for $32 million, which if he continues along this trajectory – He's going to decline and opt out and become an unrestricted free agent. Why wouldn't he? He's only going to be 31 years old and a player who produces like Jalen Brown. We just saw him trip all over himself in the conference finals and put up numbers similar to what Julius Randle put up during the playoffs. Jalen Brown's about to make $55 million a year, 50 to $55 million a year. So you, you want to tell me that Julius Randle at $32 million a year isn't a bargain? But I digress. Let's go back to my original point. My original point is this. These contracts expire so quickly. There's no nine-year guaranteed Aaron Judge contract where he's got nine years to go uh, before he can think about opting out or becoming a free agent. No, no, Jalen Brunson, as, as much of a bargain as he was also at that four-year, $26 million a year contract he signed, he's got three years left, one of them a player option. I believe it's a player option. Let me make sure. But either way, he's got at most three years left. So the window is now, right? You've got Brunson underpaid at uh, $26 million. Your best player, okay? You don't have anybody making above that. You have, as Jose just pointed out, our last caller, you have assets to trade. You have a bunch of future first-round draft picks, some of them unprotected. Uh, you have a bunch of future second-round draft picks if you want to add those in as a sweetener in a trade um, and you also have young players on good contracts who have proven. Thank you, Jacob Perry, telling me a player option for uh, Jalen Brunson. Brunson's not. You think Brunson's going to play out that contract? You got Brunson under contract for two more years. All right. 
He's making $26 million next year. He's making $26 million the year after that. And then he is going, if he continues playing like this, and Knicks fans hope he does, he's going to ask for the bag. So the window is now. Brunson's not going anywhere. Randall's contract is more tradable than you think. How much of a factor is this ankle surgery? I don't think it's going to be a huge factor. I don't think it's going to help, right, if there was a team that was already considering making a move for Julius Randle. And there are teams out there that would want to bring Julius Randle in. Why? Because he plays every game and he produces every game. Is he perfect? No. But, you know, what perfect player in the NBA uh, is A, available, and B, available for $28 million a year? But if you look in the bottom half of the NBA, all those teams that just missed out on Victor Wembenyama, the Rockets or the Pistons or the Hornets, somebody like that, Okay, why wouldn't you want to bring in a guy who's automatic every game, 23 and 10? Automatic. Those kinds of numbers, and I say this every single time I'm on this station, those kinds of numbers that Julius Randle puts up do not grow on trees. But you got to act now, all right? And the biggest thing that the Knicks need, yeah, they need more shooting. They need a three, another 3 and D guy. They could use more offense at center. All of those things are true. What they really and truly need is a dependable and reliable number two guy in a big spot to help out Jalen Brunson. And in the playoffs, it was clear they did not have that consistently. In the final game of the season, it was abundantly clear they didn't have that. As Randall went three for 15 and R.J. Barrett went one for 10 and the Knicks season ended with Jalen Brunson leaving everything he could on the floor and it just wasn't enough for him to do by himself. So that ultimately is what the Knicks need. That's the biggest differentiator. When you get to this level, the Knicks were what? The eighth best team in the NBA this season? Seventh, eighth, ninth? They're definitely one of the top 10 teams in the NBA. When you get to that level of the sport, and again, it's been a long time since the Knicks were here, but when you get to that level of the sport, the changes that differentiate the number one and the number two teams from the number seven and the number eight teams, those are towards the top of the roster. Those aren't towards the seventh, eighth, ninth man, all right? The Knicks' next step as a contender is not going to swing on who their seventh or eighth man of the rotation is. It's going to swing on who their number two option is next to Jalen Brunson or who their number one option becomes next to Jalen Brunson. And if that's where, if that's the, the, the part of the store that you're shopping in, which is where they should be shopping this offseason, then there's only one piece of furniture to rearrange and that, I'm sorry, is Julius Randle. It is. And Randle has had the opportunity in that role, number one option two years ago, number two option this season, but it hasn't worked out. It hasn't been enough. You thought after the Atlanta series, okay, if he can just get a little bit of help, then maybe things would be different. Well, he got a lot more help than we thought with Jalen Brunson, and it still wasn't different. Was the ankle injury a factor? It was, but I don't think it was the only factor. And if you're not improving, you're just standing in place or more likely than that, you are getting worse as all of the other teams around you look to improve themselves as well. So that's where the Knicks are right now. Uh, we'll get to some Yankees discussion uh, after the break. 1-800-919-3776. Yankees got some reinforcements back last night. It helped offensively. Uh, tough night for Luis Severino. They look to bounce back this evening at Chavez Ravine against the L.A. Dodgers. We'll have that for you right here on 98.7 ESPN New York.
You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. In Los Angeles against the Dodgers. And by the way, just as a baseball fan, seeing the Yankees and the Dodgers on the same field together is it's, it's extremely peaceful and nostalgic and historic. And just watching any baseball game at Dodger Stadium at the start of a game, usually, you know, 10, 10, 15 here on the East Coast, but 7, 7, 15 local time out there in Los Angeles. It is I always and I've never been in the stadium. I, I, I one of my hobbies with my son and with my father is we, we go to a lot of baseball stadiums. We try to hit a couple new ones every single year. In fact, last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, we went out to Chicago. The Cubs and the White Sox were both playing home games on Monday, on Memorial Day. The Cubs were at one and the White Sox were at seven. So we went out there for the weekend. Gorgeous city, especially this time of year. We caught the Cubs and the Rays at 1 o'clock, and then we saw the White Sox take on the Angels at 7. So my son, I had been to Wrigley before. My son was able to check off two more ballparks on his list. He's up to 7 now at 9 years old, so that's not that bad. I've never been to Dodger Stadium, though. But every time I I see it and see that setting on television, you get a sense of kind of going back in time. Uh, it really does seem like a special place. So it, it, aesthetically pleasing makes sense. It's in Los Angeles. It's in Hollywood, right? It's in the center of all of that. Um, but it really is a, a terrific scene. And then you do throw the Yankees in, and you have you know the historical implications also. I mean, they've met in the World Series 11 times. The Yankees have won eight of them. Most of the times they met in the World Series, the Dodgers were playing here in New York City in Brooklyn. They move out to Los Angeles. Their uniforms are still the same, except the B for Brooklyn has turned into an L.A. for Los Angeles. But other than that, they still have the blue lettering with the red numbers on the front of their jersey. I mean, it's a terrific scene. And I remember the last time that the Yankees were in Los Angeles to take on the Dodgers. It was in 2019, and I think it was in August. And it was that Players Weekend that they did for a few times, a few years, which the players would put their nicknames on the back of their jerseys. And they also wore like alternate or or different uniforms. And the Dodgers were wearing an all white combination and the Yankees were wearing an all black combination. The Yankees looked like they were wearing pajamas. I mean, it was really, you know, a, a huge swing and a miss by Major League Baseball. To take two iconic franchises with iconic uniforms and make them essentially play a three game series against each other wearing pajamas. So it was nice to see last night um, the Yankees and the Dodgers on the same field again because you don't get to see it that often, although you will get to see it more and more often now with the new Major League Baseball schedule with each team playing every other team in baseball, regardless of American or National League, at least for one series every single season. But the Yankees lose 8-4. to four. It was just a nightmarish first inning for Luis Severino. Um, it was hit after hit after hit after hit for the Dodgers. They had eight hits. They got a leadoff home run for Moogie Betts. They got a first inning home run for Max Muncy. They got eight base hits, most of them hard hit, and six runs in the first inning. The only way the Yankees were able to get out of the first inning is that Jose Trevino caught a runner sleeping on third base and threw behind him, and they were able to get him out for the third out of that inning The only bright spot for Severino is that he did settle down after that, and he at least was able, because it looked like he wasn't going to get out of the first inning, at least he was able to give the Yankees four innings and somewhat save their bullpen. Now, 
the the most important thing to come out of last night for the Yankees is that they're getting healthy and they got three key pieces back in one fell swoop last night with John Carlos Stanton coming back. It was his first game since April 15th. Josh Donaldson back. It was his first game since April 5th. And they also got Tommy Canely back. Tommy Canely, a former Yankee, hadn't pitched for the Yankees since 2020. Last year, he was actually a Dodger, but he had been injured to start the season, and he made his season debut as well. So the Yankees lineup, if you've looked at some of these combinations in recent weeks with guys like Willie Calhoun and Frenchie Cordero in the middle of the lineup batting third and fourth, Anthony Volpe sometimes leading off with a sub-200 average and a sub-240 on base percentage, Um, especially now in recent days with Harrison Bader back on the injured list, the Yankee lineup has lacked length and lacked depth, to say the least. So the re-entry of Stanton and Donaldson certainly helping in that area. Here's Aaron Boone after last night's loss on those two guys, two former MVPs, mind you, Stanton and Donaldson returning to the lineup. I thought every at-bat Giancarlo had was good. He was on time all night, all the way to that last A-B where he works the walk. Obviously, J.D., you know, really getting into a couple balls and hit a ball pretty well to third, too. So, yeah, good to see those guys come in and, and just be on time and obviously really impact the ball. Yeah, and they both homered. Stanton hit a Stantonian home run, if you will, uh, to left field, uh, just like he did in the All-Star game. Uh, Josh Donaldson. Uh, with two home runs, just his third and fourth hits of the season. So, you know, it just shows how little of a factor Donaldson has been this year. And it also shows how things have changed because Donaldson injured his hamstring running to first base in a game against the Twins on April 5th. And at the time, I thought it was a blessing in disguise for the Yankees because you had D.J. LeMahieu, you had Glaber Torres. You wanted to run Anthony Volpe out there every day. And you had Anthony Rizzo at first base. But, you know, with the benefit of time and just kind of seeing what this team is now and the lack of any offense that they have in their lineup beyond Judge, beyond Glaber Torres, Donaldson is a bat that they need. I thought at the time when he went down on, on April 5th, we might never see him again. I thought, good, you put DJ at third, you stop jerking him around. You put Glaber Torres at second, you stop jerking him around. You have Rizzo at first, you have Volpe at short, and that's your infield. And you go with that. And then, you you know, you have your utility guys coming off the bench. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who has really taken nicely to that role. Uh, Oswaldo Cabrera, who can fill that role but just wasn't hitting the ball as at all. A guy like Donaldson's not going to fill that role because he's a third baseman. Maybe occasionally you could throw him at first base, but he was kind of just glutting up the infield and glutting up the lineup. Well, the Yankees need this guy's bat, and it's it's really now or never for Donaldson. I mean, this is his time to show what he can do because at the beginning of the season, I felt that they were putting him in the lineup because they're paying him $25 million, and they wanted to see if either A, they could get something out of him, or B, increase his trade value to see if they could move him to open up a spot in the lineup. Well, here we are two months after that. LeMahieu is not hitting. He's clearly, clearly not the same hitter he was on his first contract as a Yankee. Torres has been fine. Rizzo's been really good, but you didn't know Rizzo was fine until he came back last night. He missed the whole Seattle series after that collision at first base with Fernando Tatis Jr., but it was a good sign to see Rizzo back in the lineup. 
Volpe, I still think, is going to be fine, and I really, really do appreciate the way they have handled him this season. Just running him out there every game. His stats aren't jumping off the page. He's not Derek Jeter of 1996. I don't think anybody rightfully could have thought that he would be, and that's an unfair comparison, but it's also a comparison that's right there because they were the same age and uh, starting shortstops opening day for this franchise. Uh, what, 27 years apart, whatever it will be. Um, but he let him grow into the position, and he's getting that opportunity to grow into the position. But you have Torres, you have Volpe, you have Rizzo, you need production from third base. And it's not a foregone conclusion now that it's DJ LeMahieu's job. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how Aaron Boone handles all of this because you have LeMahieu, and could you get him a day here or there at second base for Torres? Yeah, but you don't want to take Torres as bad out of the lineup. You have Donaldson, and I'd really like to see, especially coming off of last night, i really like to see if you can get anything at all out of Josh Donaldson and then, yeah, the other answer would be, okay, we'll stick one of them in the DH spot. Well, for the next couple of weeks, that DH spot is going to be occupied by Stanton as he continues to get himself in shape to be able to play the field somewhat regularly, okay? So it's going to be interesting to see how Aaron Boone handles that in the upcoming games. As for Aaron Boone in last night's game, uh, here he is on Severino's tough first inning. Just some leaking into the heart of the plate, and they didn't miss. You know, maybe not quite quite the life that he had in his last start, but I still thought, okay, like I thought first pitch of the game looked from just from my vantage point crisp, and then trying to go away and just ran back middle, middle right there, and Mookie got him. Um, you know, they had some hard contact in him in that inning. You know, settled in to give us something there, which was good, but, you know, obviously a tough one in the first. At least he did get something out of it. He was able to salvage four innings after a very, very tough first inning. Here's what we know about the Yankees. If Stanton plays, he hits, and he's done that ever since putting on the Yankees uniform, but he misses a lot of games. You know, he, he was injured. They, they always make it sound like, oh, 10 days, 10-day 10 injured list. Maybe he'll be back in one and a half to two weeks. Every time Stanton goes on the IL, it's at least a month. It's at least a month. And guess what? He got hurt on the 15th. That was his last game. He came back on the third. He was out for a month and a half every single time. But when he plays, he hits. All right. Uh, the other thing we know that is is if Josh Donaldson hits, he'll play. It's as simple as that. He wasn't good last year, uh, but last year they had other options. Or so we thought. This year there are not a lot of other options. So I think the Yankee fan needs to be patient here with Josh Donaldson because unlike last year when he was annoying and he got involved in that stupid controversy uh, where he – stupidly opened his mouth to Tim Anderson on the base paths against the White Sox early in the season. Yeah, he, he's he's not the most likable guy in the world, all right? Last year, it felt like he was more of a nuisance and an annoyance. If you're a Yankee fan this year, you need Josh Donaldson. Plain and simple. You need him to produce. So let's see if he can. Uh, we'll get to more of your calls and uh, more on the Yankees as we continue on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. It was a mixture of a lot of minor things last year where I was off and just couldn't get going. And I haven't put a lot of time and a lot of energy into into my craft. And, you know, today's one day. Got to come on and do it again tomorrow. All right, there's Yankees third baseman Josh Donaldson after his return from the injured list last night in which he had two home runs, hits, hits, not home runs, hits number three and four this season. It was just the sixth game that he has played, but hopefully a sign of good things to come for the 37-year-old second-year Yankee third baseman 
former American League Most Valuable Player when he was a Blue Jay back in 2015. But last year, his first year in pinstripes, and I think Yankee fans were happy to see him at the beginning only because he was part of the trade in which the Yankees were finally able to unload Gary Sanchez. But over time, as Donaldson didn't produce and was kind of an annoyance last season, he became, to Yankee fans, what Gary Sanchez had been previously to Yankee fans. So, in a sense, it was kind of a wash. And last year, it, it was bad. He batted 222. His OPS was 682, 15 home runs, 62 RBIs. Played a good third base. He played a very good third base. But offensively, he was inept. And it actually got worse in the playoffs. How many big spots did he come up in during the postseason last year? And not only didn't come through, but struck out in those big spots. So, very early this season, he's only played six games. Uh, he's got three home runs in those six games. Three of his four hits this season have been home runs. So we'll see if that's something that he can build on. Because like I said before the break, the Yankees actually need him. Remember last year, the guys on the K show, and they still kind of joke about it a little bit this year, but last year they had that stupid rest roulette thing where if you take out the catcher spot, Every game, the Yankees had nine guys to fill eight spots in the lineup, so you had to have every single day, you had to have an everyday player not in the starting lineup, whether it was Torres, whether it was LeMayhew. Occasionally, it was even Aaron Judge, um, Joey Gallo. Josh Donaldson was part of that as well. So it, it seemed superfluous to have all of those guys on the team last year. When you see what the Yankees are this year, they actually do need Josh Donaldson because – there aren't a lot of offensive options on this roster, especially healthy right now, outside of Josh Donaldson. All right, let's go back to your calls at 1-800-919-3776. Go to Tommy in Connecticut. Tommy, what's going on? Yeah, good afternoon. How are we doing? Good. How are you, Tommy? Good. I, I mean, you kind of brought up nightmares when you talked about that player series from a couple <laughs> of years uniforms? ago. <laughs> God-awful, like white on white and black on black. It, it was it was just a sh that was a shame that, that, that never should have been done like that. I just remember looking at uh, I remember James Paxton pitching with, with big maple on the on the back of his jersey. I was like, this is not Yankees Dodgers. You know who else didn't like it, it was Brett Gardner. I, remember, you know, remember it, remember what he put on the back of his jersey? I, no, I can't remember. I can't recall. He put Gardner because he refused to take part in that nonsense. You know, and they, they said he had to put something on the back, so he goes, all right, put Gardner. <laughs> I love that guy. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we were talking about, uh, you know, getting Stanton and Donaldson back. It was great to see him hit last night, even though uh, the game was basically lost in the first inning. Um, I was wondering what you thought about Severino, because I think he, he's had a history of tipping pitches in the past. I wonder if, if he was giving something away. Because they, even on, like, even on outs, they they were all hard hit balls. I mean, like they were they, they were lacing the ball, you know, right at Rizzo, right at Greg Allen. Yeah, I mean, everything was hit on the screws. Yeah, it wasn't good, and he does. And uh, thanks for the call, Tommy. That's happened before. You know what it reminded me of? I think it was 2017 when he started the wild card game against the Twins, and he didn't make it out of the first inning. And it was just knock after knock after knock for Minnesota Yankees. Ended up responding right away. Didi hit a big home run. I think it was, was it a grand slam or a three-run home run? But the Yankees got right back into that game. They won that game because it was against the Twins and it was the playoffs and the Yankees always do. But yeah, Severino very possibly could be. But he, he strained things out after that first inning. Uh, here, here's the deal with the Yankees right now. And this is why it's so important to get Stanton 
and Donaldson back right now because the Yankees are going to be carried by their offense. You know, their pitching staff, you know, Schmidt's last start was good. Cole has been really good, but his last few starts, like his first three or four starts until that Tampa game that he blew the big lead, his first three or four starts were otherworldly. You know, his last three or four starts have been good, not otherworldly, and and you need a lot from him. You know, Nestor Cortez is still up and down. Domingo Herman, when he's available and not cheating, has actually been pretty good. Uh, and, and Severino, his first two starts were very encouraging, and last night was a, a setback. But Severino, I, I think he – I look at Severino like Stanton. When Severino pitches, he pitches well. When Stanton plays, he hits. But Severino's hurt all the time, and Stanton is hurt all the time. Hopefully, um, hopefully they both got it out of their system early. Now, historically, Stanton is usually good for one – you know, lengthy stint on the IL, a month to a month and a half. He just had that. Historically, and I hate to say this, Severino, he starts hurt, he comes back, he pitches really well, and then in the second half of the season, he disappears again for a period of time. That's what has happened in the past. That doesn't mean it's going to happen this year, but look, you hope that you hope that that's behind him for this year because when he pitches, he pitches well. When Stanton plays he hits well. All right, we'll take another break. You know, when we come back, uh, why last night, why last night's loss in Los Angeles for the Yankees could be more than just the first loss of a three-game series. It could turn into something more. That and your calls as we continue on 98.7 ESPN New York.